This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi and is sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Big Y Pharmacy and Wellness Center, Bradford Eye Center, Coveris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You're encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we answer all of your health questions here. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you uh, during this uh, Sports Saturday. Uh, As uh, we've already announced, UConn football will be in Dallas, Texas, playing uh, Southern Methodist University, so SMU at 4 o'clock. After this program, I will be in New London at the Coast Guard Academy, where they host Catholic University. And last week, I had the pleasure of working with the Professional Bull Riders Tour. Uh, This is the PBR Built for Tough Tour. Um, They have a different tour coming, actually, uh, that will be in town tonight in Hartford. If you get a chance, it's a great show. Uh, I could tell you it's a type of show you could bring children to. There aren't, uh, there isn't any inappropriate entertainment, and children love it. Uh, you have uh, clowns, you have animals, you have cowboys, you have music. Uh, it's it's a great show. So if you get down to the XL Center, um, I think you'll enjoy it. A great show to bring your children and grandchildren. But I'm looking forward to today's show. We're going to have a couple of guests calling in. Um, Dr. Ann Ferris is going to call in. She's a Ph.D. at UConn and Professor Emerita of Medicine and Public Health. She just published an interesting study looking at childhood obesity in Hartford. And they did this study in 2012 and then repeated it again in 2016. As we all know, childhood obesity is a serious health problem. It's also a very expensive health problem. So she's going to talk to us about some of the trends in childhood obesity as they pertain to the city of Hartford. And before she calls in, we're going to have Dr. Marion Acevedo Alvarez. uh, Alvarez. Uh, Dr. Alvarez is a urogynecology fellow at Yale. But more importantly, she is spearheading an effort to provide some relief for the people in Puerto Rico after this devastating hurricane. Since we're on that topic, and it was great listening to the Tab Computer guys a little bit about, you know, getting ready for these things. You know, we've learned a lot in Haiti when it comes to dealing with disaster, because you can always count on disaster. Um, A lot of the things we've learned is to start relying on solar power. And 60% of all the power to our hospital comes from a solar array. Also, We always have an emergency satellite radio ready to go. Uh, But the ham radio option is also a great option to try and keep in touch when all these technologies fail. So we're going to talk to her a little bit about some of the local efforts and the one she's spearheading to help the people of Puerto Rico. This day in medicine, September 30th, 1894, Dr. Vladimir Betz died. Dr. Betz was a Russian anatomist. 
1874, he was the person who identified the cells in the motor cortex of the brain that bear his name. They're pyramidal cells, all now known as the Bet cells. That's important because that's where we generate, we begin this chain of generating movement, to move a limb, to speak. All that comes from those cells in that cortex that he identified in 1874. So it's uh, so important and um, something we all get to know as we study neurology in medical school. So some of the things that have been going on in the world. Uh, last week, I did several interviews, including one for Ray Dunaway, on Aaron Hernandez and the revelation that the scientists at Boston University have identified his brain as one of those having CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Let me explain. Chronic traumatic encephalopathy is a pathologic diagnosis. It's something you diagnose when someone dies. And it has particular features to it. Many of those features are carryover from the 1928 publication of Dr. Harrison Martland. Dr. Martland was a medical examiner, the medical examiner in Newark, New Jersey, and he noticed that the brains of professional prize fighters, I don't even know if they, they still use that term, but prize fighters, when he analyzed their brains after they died, were different. And he defined certain characteristics in a publication that was appeared in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association. The title of the article was Punch Drunk, and he describes what became known as dementia pugilistica, boxer's dementia. And in that, he actually described the changes in the brain and some of the motor characteristics of a fighter who's been hit too many times. So when you fast forward to the studies being done now, we now have a way of identifying a substance called tau protein that normally occurs in nerve cells but leaks after the brain is hit several times. And with that, the appearance of that tau protein and the location of it indicate a diagnosis of CTE. Now, in pertaining to Aaron Hernandez and others, no one has demonstrated a link between this pathologic diagnosis and the clinical actions, the actions that person, the decisions that person may have made in life. I realize now that there's an attorney involved and they're going to try and sue. And But whenever you, it's an interesting development in terms of CTE, but there's so much work to be done. So when you try to take science that's developing and combine it with litigation, you're bound to have an erroneous outcome. That's for sure. I can guarantee that. One of the things we know for sure, people say, well, what can we do about it? Well, let's go back to 1928. And when we know the more you get hit in the head, it is not healthy for the brain. The brain was not made to sustain repeated blows. So if you really want to avoid this, avoid getting hit in the head and not entering an occupation where you get hit in the head for a living. The other thing we need to do as parents is be very mindful of a developing brain because when you do damage to a developing brain, that damage is amplified. It takes longer for a child to recover from a concussion. 
and the ramifications in their longevity are also greater. So again, this movement toward not having children start high-velocity collision sports till the age of 13 or 14 when they get to high school is a valid one. So these are things that can be done now. Another thing that came out this week is the identified of the identification of CCL11. And basically, it is a blood test that we feel may reveal a predisposal towards CTE while someone is alive. It's a small sample size, as many of the listeners know here. Small sample size means incomplete work. But is it important? Yes, if we're going to lead towards potentially a treatment that reverses these problems in the brain, it's important. But the most important treatment is avoiding the damage altogether. So with that, it'll be interesting to watch this legal battle because um, there is no real science to back that up. The other thing everybody's talking about uh, on the various shows here in WTIC and really around the state is the new budget for the state of Connecticut. And uh, I heard uh, a senator, Senator Fasano, was on another program. I actually called in uh, because it's it's crazy. We're listening to a bunch of political rhetoric out there. And I resent the fact that Senator Fasano referred to the employees of UConn, the state employees who provide health care as a bunch of crybabies and arrogant. Those are not words becoming of a senator who's elected. Now, maybe he thinks he can get away with that, but I can tell you that as someone who works at UConn, you have to really have some understanding of the health care system, of which Senator Fasano has demonstrated no, no knowledge of the health care system in Connecticut. Because one thing you'll find is physicians in private practice can't afford to take Medicaid anymore. It pays too little. You can't stay in practice. So people with Medicaid have to go to larger institutions like the University of Connecticut, where a large predominance of the patients we see in clinic have Medicaid, an entitlement program. Somebody has to pay for that. Now, if Senator Fasano is saying we can't afford that anymore, well, then he's making another social issue. I don't think he wants to go out on a limb and say we're going to cut back Medicaid, okay, because he'll probably lose votes for that. But instead, he thinks it's okay to be critical of UConn Health. Well, he's made a huge mistake and, and, and actually a foolish mistake from that standpoint. Because what he's saying is we can't afford health and we can't afford education. If you can't afford those two things, your state's in big trouble. It's in huge trouble because those are the type of things you want to develop in the people who live in this state so that they could be successful. And guess what? They could pay taxes. So with that, I think we're going to be hearing more rhetoric from Republicans, from Democrats, back and forth. But as people, as citizens, we need to understand what it really means in a budget going forward. And I'm not for it. I'm not against it. But I am against political rhetoric and people trying to tell us and make us think they know what's going on. With that, we're going to be right back uh, with Dr. Marion Acevedo Alvarez, and she's going to be talking to us a little bit about a program she's spearheading to get relief for the people in Puerto Rico. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. 
We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And on the line with us today is uh, Dr. Marion Acevedo Alvarez, um, who is a urogynecology fellow at the uh, at Yale University and uh, very active in helping the plight of uh, the folks in Puerto Rico. Uh, Dr. Acevedo Alvarez, how are you? Hi, I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about Puerto Rico and our needs. Well, I want to take a step backward. Can you explain to our listeners uh, what you do in urogynecology? It's a relatively new specialty, and I don't think a lot of people uh, know what you do. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm an OBGYN trained. I did my residency in OBGYN, and now I'm doing a three-year fellowship in urogynecology, which is a surgical subspecialty of gynecology. Um, We take care mostly of um, issues with prolapse, um, so like a dropped bladder, dropped uterus, that kind of thing, and also urinary incontinence, um, so leakage of urine, that kind of thing. Well, that's outstanding. Now, are you originally from Puerto Rico? What is your link to Puerto Rico? Yeah, I'm actually originally from Puerto Rico. My family is in Puerto Rico. I'm half Puerto Rican, half Dominican, so the Puerto Rican side is all there. Um, I did, how does that go at Thanksgiving dinner? Uh, how does that go in Thanksgiving yeah. dinner? <laughs> we eat a lot. <laughs> okay, good, good, okay. Um, yeah, and so I did actually um, undergrad at University of Puerto Rico, which is one of the big institutions uh, back home. And then I did the rest of my training in New York and now at Yale. Um, so let's talk a little bit. What got you motivated to start this effort? And please describe for our listeners the effort themselves and 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 how they could participate. Yeah, of course. Um, So uh, one of the first things I do want to get out there is that we appreciate any help we can get. Everybody can pitch in. Even a little bit of help is definitely needed, and it's going to be very much appreciated. So the reason why I got involved, and a lot of us as physicians who are living outside of Puerto Rico and here in the U.S., is because the communication with our family, with our friends, with our colleagues back home is very limited, almost inexistent. We also knew that this was going to be a historic storm. Um, we also knew that the infrastructure in Puerto Rico is already, even before the storm, was already um, crumbling. And we knew that this was sort of going to be the, the thing that tipped us over the edge. Um, so we started organizing immediately during the storm as we started getting reports of the damage. Um, and now uh, we're focusing our... Um, efforts in trying to get materials, medications that are needed, desperately needed in the island, um, and trying to work out the logistics, which is definitely quite a challenge. When you said you knew the infrastructure was crumbling even before the storm, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Just as an example, a year ago to the date, or like a couple of days after the hurricane, Um, But in 2016, we had a major outage after a fire in one of the um, power plants. And about 70 to 80 percent of the island had no power for a couple of days. Um, And it had already been, the government had already been asking for help to uh, rebuild the infrastructure, particularly for the power lines. Um, And so once we knew that there was a, in a Category 5 hurricane coming, we knew that our infrastructure was not going to withhold it. Yeah. So once again, and, and something we've talked about on this program, how important it is to really support infrastructure in any community. Right. Um, so 
you're collecting just medical supplies, or how did you get the medical supplies? For example, I think some were donations from hospitals, or how's that working? So a little bit of background, too. Um, We're part of, and I definitely need to give a shout-out to Dr. Marietta Vasquez, Dr. Cesar Sierra, and Dr. David Angel Sosa. They have been um, instrumental in getting these donations delivered to Puerto Rico. And just so you understand how, how difficult the logistics is, Dr. Uh, Marietta Vasquez had a contact at the Universe Children's Hospital in Puerto Rico. She received a list with poor communication, but she actually was able to get an Excel sheet um, with materials, medications that were needed in the island. Um, through a system of volunteers, we were able to get uh, a lot of donations from both Yale New Haven Hospital and Hartford Children's Hospital. Um, and these two institutions were the premier institutions to actually get those uh, materials and medications uh, delivered to the island. But we had a point person in Puerto Rico ready to pick up the materials and bring them specifically to an address in Puerto Rico. So we were sure that those medications and materials were getting to the intended place. How did you get them to the island? By air? By boat? By air, and Dr. Cesar Sierra was um, the one who was able to coordinate, um, I believe, with United, the uh, flight to Puerto Rico. So one of the problems we're hearing about is trying to get supplies there. Right. Um, the docks are tied up. You know, it, it, it's particularly striking to me because I was just in Puerto Rico in early August on right. vacation. So, uh, you know, you could see how vibrant it was, especially in San Juan. So one of the problems is getting them delivered, getting the supplies delivered there. And when you talk about infrastructure, you created your own infrastructure to have these supplies delivered. Um, And that's one of the problems, isn't it? Right. And I think this is a multi-step issue. Um, I think that, you know, I, I encourage everybody and especially all of the physicians from the diaspora who are looking for ways to help Puerto Rico. We have a website, a Facebook page. It's called Puerto Rico Rices, Connecticut. Um, And we're actively working on making a video with very specific instructions so that other institutions can follow in Yale New Haven footsteps. Um, So that is coming. um, And we encourage everybody to look on our uh, Facebook page. Um, And... um, is there a phone number? Is there a website other than uh, the Facebook page? Not for now. Okay. Um, and that's part of, you know, this is a grassroots organization. Oh, yeah. A lot of us are fellows and attending. <laughs> on top of having right. to perform surgery and be on call. I exactly. want people to understand that, you know, uh, you know, Dr. Acevedo Alvarez has a full-time job as right. a fellow and is a medical doctor and is still doing this right. um, on her own time and her own nickel to, to right. pull this together. Yeah, so, and this is a full-time job. Yeah. Um, and I think that a lot, another piece of the puzzle is donations from individuals, but also a big part of it is going to be lobbying. So we encourage um, your audience to call our senators, call people in Congress, and request more help from the U.S. federal government so that we can coordinate all all of these efforts. Um, So what is the Facebook page again? It's Connecticut. I'm sorry, Puerto Rico Rices, Connecticut. Okay. Well... Keep us posted, and you could shoot me an email at any time to give me some updates on information um, that I could relay to our listeners. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much. One last thing I'd like sure. to get in. We're now preparing for the possibility of epidemics. As you can imagine, we have a lot of people in, sh in sure. small spaces, no water, no electricity. Um, so that's another point I wanted to get across. Okay. Well, just please let us know uh, how we can help in some way, shape, or form. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Again. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you. Bye -bye. Take care. We're going to take a break right now, and then we're going to be back with Dr. Ann Ferris, who is a professor emerita from the University of Connecticut. We're going to be talking about childhood obesity. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. The loveliness of Paris. That's the voice of Mr. Tony Bennett, who will be at the Mohegan Sun tonight. There is an amazing story, because let's face it, he is, I believe, 91 years old now, and will still be performing live in front of a large crowd, the whole arena. It's a sellout. So he's really shown longevity uh, in the sense of his ability to continue to perform and really care for yourself. So anyhow, if you are down there, if you have tickets, it, it's just great. It's a great venue to see somebody like uh, Mr. Tony Bennett. Next up uh, on our program, we have uh, Dr. Ann Ferris. Dr. Ferris is a professor emerita of public health and medicine at the University of Connecticut. She is a Ph.D. She's also a registered dietitian. And she has done tremendous work in the field of childhood obesity, and specifically here in Connecticut and in Hartford. Uh, Dr. Ferris, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Dr. Lissy. Well, thanks for taking time. Let's, let's talk a little bit about, can you frame the problem for us? I mean, the childhood obesity problem. We know it's a problem. We know it's an expensive problem. But can you frame it for us, not only in Connecticut, but nationally? Yes. So um, nationally, we started to see a real uptake in childhood obesity uh, in the mid '80s, uh, and that um, has continued. It's really come into epidemic proportions, and then we started to see a a little downward trend around uh, 2015. But this downward trend, especially in areas of poverty, um, is still twice what we would expect twice to three times what we would expect um, to be for children in, that, uh, in, that, in the age groups, whatever age group that you look at. Um, and we're especially uh, seeing that trend. Uh, we're seeing more of a downward trend now in older children, um, and it's pretty level off in the early, very early childhood. So that's why we're really trying to focus now on the very early childhood, in fact, the first thousand days before the data that I presented on Wednesday to the city, um, because that's if we're going to be able to prevent uh, th this problem from even getting worse, that's where we have to focus on the, pre the prenatal period and, you know, when child children are first starting to eat and grow. So uh, let me ask you, because what I found most astounding in looking at your report is the young ages that we're focused on now. It's really uh, preschool and mm -hmm. um, really just uh, right after birth. Uh, how do you define someone, a child as being overweight or obese? So um, they use a, a, a formula called the body mass index, 
and we use that for adults also. I'll explain it first for adults. So in adults, we just try and have a formula that tries to describe how much weight is on a, on a standard frame. And so if you're 150 pounds and you're four feet, it's very different if you're 150 pounds and you're six feet. Um, one person would be obese and one the other would not. In children, it's a little bit more complicated, very much more complicated, because children are still growing. That height is not static, but we still use a BMI, and that BMI uh, ch- changes over time uh, because it's controlled for age and for gender. Um, and so we look at, as we described in the study, BMI decreasing. It's It's not a standard number. You know, in a for adults, 24, when you have a BMI of 24, then that's then you're of normal weight. That's not the same for children. Uh, but it's the same concept, uh, only the formula is a little different because we have to account for children growing. And we, that's the most important thing is we want to make sure that we don't, by trying to reduce, uh, trying to prevent what we call obesity, that we prevent children from growing um, and that just aggravates their problems later in life because then they're still going to have uh, more weight on a shorter frame. So I guess a couple of things. I guess in looking at your your information from 2012 to 2016, I was pleasantly surprised that the rate went down from 37% to 32%, right. although it doesn't sound like a lot. That, that it's fairly significant. Oh, it is significant. <laughs> what do you attribute that to? Well, I think one of the things that's been – very wonderful for me working in the city of Hartford is that through several administrations, this has been a problem that the city health department, the city department of families, children, youth and recreation, the mayor have all taken as a priority. Um, and so after the 2012 report, a number of uh, city departments really got together and said, what are we going to do about this? A number of a lot of partners in the city uh, started to focus some of their programs, our own programs, because we have programs in the city also. We really started to, to focus um, in on, on trying to, you know, get healthy food in the, in the early child care, um, make sure that regulations were held. The early child care directors themselves, um, they meet monthly, uh, and with Jane Kroll, who's the assistant director for the Department of Families, Children, Youth, and Recreation. I'm not sure if I get the acronym right. Um, and they all are also discussing this. Um, and so there's been a real concerted effort. Um, and you have partners like the Hartford Food System, the Hispanic Health Council. There was the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving um, formed a funded a child uh, Hartford Child Wellness Alliance that was led out of CCMC. So there's been a lot of activity, and I, I think what was very heartening from the rep- after we presented the report that showed that it has decreased significantly is that the the mayor said this is not good enough. You know, it, it, we're not going to let rest on our laurels. We now need to really re up what we're doing to get to help to get our children back into um, much more normal parameters, and we have to really start to examine what's what's happening. Um, and so a lot of a lot of that. So he is committed to um, in, into reinvigorating a number of initiatives that have been that have been started or creating new initiatives. Dr. Ferris, is this a socioeconomic problem? Because you're naming agencies um, that. I'm personally not familiar with, but it sounds like they are agencies that work 
um, with people who are challenged socioeconomically um, in general. Is this a socioeconomic problem? Are we seeing uh, this problem more in uh, Latino children uh, or other children in the community based on ethnicity? So the first thing is, it is a, at this level, it is an issue of poverty. We've done a similar study for the city of New Britain, and what we, we could see in the New Britain study is that the poorer the neighborhood, the higher the level of obesity in young children. Okay. Um, so it definitely is related to poverty, um, and part of that is, you know, and a lot of that is. Um, methods of early childhood feeding, that moms are not prepared for pregnancy, they gain too much weight during pregnancy, um, they're not breastfeeding, there's been, they don't have access to healthy food once the ch- ch- child is born, um, and, and also that the moms are, tend to be in very high stress. What, what I think is we do see that children who are from Latino and Hispanic backgrounds have uh, are significantly heavier than children from African American and back, black backgrounds and Asian and Caucasian backgrounds. But I, what the one thing that I really stressed in the report was when we looked at the reduction of BMI, it was the same for all ethnic groups. So all of the ethnic groups are making the same level of headway, and that even the African American and black children and the Asian and Caucasian children were still twice of the number of children um, were, you know, were overweight or obese than you w- we would want to see from national uh, reference standards from CDC. I just I find this really fascinating. And we're going to take a short break because I, I really want to get back uh, to let's find out what these children should be eating, shouldn't be eating, and how that food should be delivered and how we get a handle on this uh, even further. So we'll be back with Dr. Ann Ferris. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds, and in our last segment, uh, we're chatting with Dr. Ann Ferris Dr. Ferris is a Ph.D. and registered dietitian, and she just published an interesting study looking at childhood weight surveillance in preschool in Hartford, Connecticut. And right before the break, we were talking a little bit about how food is delivered to these children. So primarily we we looked at the study seems to look at low-income families. So, you know, my thought of you know, food and children is the lunch lady, okay? So should we be giving everybody skim milk instead of regular milk or something of that nature? But obviously, from your study, this has to start a lot earlier. Um, so so where are these people, where are these children getting their food? So, you know what, can I pick up on first when you Please. say it has to start a lot earlier? Yeah. Really going to prevent uh, the epidemic of childhood obesity but we have to go back and we have to focus on the mother and the mother being healthy and at adequate weight at the time of conception. That mm. is the most yeah. critical piece in preventing childhood obesity. And, and it's an issue because many, 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 you know, 75% of, of mothers in some of the studies that I've done are overweight and obese in, 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 in Hartford. So, um, so we have to focus there. If we, 
and that's where a lot of our uh, our efforts have to be made. Then we have to um, make sure that mothers get adequate but not excessive weight gain during pregnancy. And then the next piece is that when they're born, that as many as possible breastfeed. So we start about the first food for the child. Breastfeeding is a really uh, it's a really important piece, and that's one of the places where, especially the work from the Hispanic Health Council and then work from the Maternal Infant and Child Outreach Program from the Health Department have made on get increasing the number of women in in Hartford who are who are of limited resources who initiate breastfeeding um, and stay with it. It's still not anywhere near what it should be, but I think we're making strides that other areas have not. Some of the hospitals becoming baby-friendly hospitals so that they encourage breastfeeding no matter, you know, who you are, and they make it easier for moms to breastfeed. So that's one important piece. And I, then the, the, next, the next piece then is if a mom chooses not to breastfeed, that she, um, that she learns responsive feeding. It's really hard for many moms because you're very anxious to be able to really figure out um, when a child is really hungry and when they're crying is from some other, uh, re- for some other reason. And especially for young moms, that's a, that's a huge issue. And it's a, a way that many of the uh, partners in, in Hartford are trying to help, you know, work with moms one-on-one to be able to, understand those cues and that's one of the biggest initiatives that's starting um coming up now it's an initiative from the robert wood johnson foundation um on learning responsive feeding so most moms are getting their first support and the children are getting their support from from the women infant children program and there's a very high enrollment rate for women infant children in in hartford and there's been great strides in the Women, Infant, Child program because they've changed the food package. Um, and we, you know, now fresh fruits and vegetables are part of that food package. And one of the things before it was they, you know, that one of the things that moms could buy was juice and cereal. And they interpreted that, I've seen from some of my studies, that this must be good food for my child. So they would the children were getting just too much juice and too much cereal um, because if they came home at night, they were tired, and they said, well, if I give them cereal, then I'm doing something good because the WIC program um, has told me that's the case. So now with the changes in the food package, there's more, uh, there are different, there's different messaging, and I think moms are understanding that cereal is just one component of, uh, fortified cereal is just one component of what they could use. And I mean, so I have, and then the next is that they don't introduce solids too early um, because they want to have breast milk formula. So, and then, and then we can get to the preschool period. Well, you know, let me back up a little bit because yeah. uh, one of the things here is that not every mother can breastfeed. Correct. And there, well, I think if you listen to the popular press, it almost makes some women, and I've heard this from women, yeah. um, feel somewhat guilty like, because I can't, my child is going to suffer. And and pediatricians say that that's not the case. Um, you know, because not every mother can breastfeed for that length of period of time, nor do they have the physical capability of doing it. So uh, are you saying formula is that much more inferior? No, I'm saying that we need to give moms every chance that they can to breastfeed. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of the 
and moms feeling inadequate are really messages that we give them from society. Right. It's also part of the idea of responsive feeding, that they don't, the moms, this is a perfect example of where moms don't understand the cues that they're getting from their children. So I, I would put that there are very few women who cannot breastfeed. Um, I think it's a, incumbent upon us as, as medical professionals to help, to make it so we create an environment where if you, if you can't, then it's, you know, we'd never want to stigmatize anybody. So if you're having problems with it, it's okay. But we've given you the options. We've given you an environment where if you can succeed, you're going to succeed in this environment with that. And then if formulas... Well, yeah, why is formula so expensive? I, I, I'll tell you why. So I'm yeah. a grandfather. I had to go out and buy formula. And right. I'm looking, and I'm seeing all these pieces of paper over at Stoppage Shop. I'm saying, what are these, coupons or what? I didn't realize they'd lock it up, okay? So formula has to be locked up. I didn't realize it was that expensive that it had to be locked up with the watches and diamonds or whatever it is they're selling. It, it, is, it become, is it that expensive? Uh, it is expensive. Now, I'm not... I'm not, I'd have to check on this, but there also has been some use of formula for other things, um, using it as base for some other, for some other uh, products. That See, could, now I didn't know that. Right, right. So, um, but yes, but it, it is, and when you need it, you need it. Um, but you know, there, there's a couple of, in terms of the development of obesity, there are some really important differences between breastfeeding and formula. So the first one that's so important is that when a child is in utero or when the mother is breastfeeding, whatever the mother is consuming, those flavors and the variety of those flavors are, um, the child gets those through, uh, either through, you know, the, either during pregnancy, crossing the placenta, or in breast milk. Not all of them, but many of those flavors. So we know there's a wonderful uh, researcher down at, um, in Philadelphia, Julie Manella, and she's done some studies that really show that if a mom eats broccoli during pregnancy, that child, and then during breast, uh, breastfeeding, that child is going to like broccoli a lot more than a, a child whose mom does not eat uh, broccoli um, or, you know, other, or, during pregnancy and breastfeeding. So a lot of flavors, we know, we've seen it with garlic, we've seen it with, you know, a whole host of things. But one of the things that that does is that the world of a child who's breastfeeding is, is open to all different kinds of flavors. Every time they take a feed, they're not tasting the same thing. But when a child is formula fed, every time they eat, they taste the same thing. And I think that's a really important component, I think, with in terms of developing, as we go on later, with children being willing to accept uh, different types of foods um, and, you know, and, and, you know, especially fruits and vegetables, and, and opens up a different kind of world for those children. So they don't get stuck in, in these food jags as much where they're just going to eat a very few things. So that's one of the things with many of the women um, who are, who who are uh, lower income? They don't have the opportunity to buy a whole sure. lot of things, or they they don't live in an area where they have access to those things, and um, so their foods are also more limited. Wow! So and, it's, again, it starts right from the beginning. So, and I have to tell you, this is this has been tremendous. I could I have to have you back on because I've got first of all, I didn't even realize this thing about the different tastes, and then we start getting into the discussion of 
allergies and why there's so many allergies in children and food allergies. So uh, we'll have to have you back on. I want to thank you for taking time today and really for all your work you're doing, um, you know, and you have done for the past 34 years uh, from your bio um, to really help children uh, in this this plight. Thank you for your time. You're welcome. Thanks. Bye-bye. I want to thank my guests, uh, Dr. Marian Acevedo Alvarez and uh, Dr. Ann Ferris, who have been on. Uh, I also want to thank Mike Olko, who stayed on the board a little bit here today, a little overtime for us, and Joe's on the board right now. Uh, Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Uh, next week, uh, we're going to hopefully have a discussion of hearing with Dr. Ben Weikerly from St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center. That's someone, one of our listeners stopped me and said, hey, can you have someone on to talk about hearing and hearing impairment? So we're going to do that next week. Please remember to help save lives by becoming an organ, eye, and tissue donor. Do that by going to registerme.org. Until next week, please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi and is sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Big Y Pharmacy and Wellness Center, Ratchford Eye Center, Coveris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC, News Talk 1080, and WTIC.com. Until then, stay well.